It's good to see you this morning. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, and this is the time of our uh, service together, of our time together, when we open up the Bible uh, and we ask God by his grace to help us surrender our hearts and our souls and our minds to, to him. Uh, that by his grace, he would transform us into the image of his son, Jesus. So uh, we cannot do that on our own. That's a, too lofty a task for uh, people such as you and I. So we're going to start by praying, and we're going to ask him to do that, and then we're going to open up our Bibles, and we are going to get to work. Um, so let's pray, and we'll get going. Father, thank you for the continued privilege of gathering together as your people. Uh, Lord, help us to surrender our souls, help us to surrender our ideas, um, help us to surrender our illusions and predispositions to you. Um, help us to find your word to be life-giving, a lamp to our feet, a light into our path, uh, sweet honey to our lips. Lord, help us to give ourselves to you, to give ourselves to your word, and by your grace, Lord, transform us into the image of your son. Lord, what we want more than anything is not information about you, not a, a code of rules that we have to follow, but it's to be transformed into the character of Jesus. We want Jesus, and we want more of Jesus, and we want to enjoy the satisfaction and joy and purpose that comes from knowing Jesus and being made into his image. So Lord, by your grace uh, and your Holy Spirit, please do that in our hearts. Uh, begin that for some this morning. Continue that process for others, Lord, and, and wake us up if we need to be woken to your power and your purpose for us. We ask this lofty thing, but you can do it. The little time we have, you can do it. It pleases you to do it. And so we open up your word with great anticipation and expectation this morning. Lord, that we'll take one more step into being transformed into the image of Jesus. For your name we pray this. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Um, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we are in our springtime journey uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, it fits well thematically with the season of the year that we're in, in the Lenten season. For those of you who are reading along with our Lent guide, uh, it fits well with the, the birth of new passion and new joy and new creation that comes with the springtime because whether you really understand it, believe it or not, hopefully by the time we're done with it, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of joy. It's a book of new birth, of new passion, of new vitality. Um, it's a book of great joy, contrary to what many of us have actually found before in reading it, if you've ever actually read it at all. So as you open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, we're going to get into chapter 2, uh, the end of chapter 2 this morning. Um, but I want to preface all of that by, by asking you this. Did, did you know, and some of you may have known, or you may know, I'm not really sure, but I didn't know. Did you know that you will spend half or a little more than half of your life commuting to and from work and doing the everyday tasks of the work that you have to do in life? For some of you right now, that's school. That's why it's called school work. But you will spend half or a little more than half of all the waking hours of your life dedicated to going to, coming from, or doing the work, the everyday work that you find yourself in. And if you think about that being half of the hours of your life, and you probably sleep roughly half of the hours of your life, maybe a little bit less. That doesn't leave a whole lot of time for a lot of other things when you really think about it. In fact, today our, our work, our jobs, our vocations, our careers, our toil, as Solomon will talk about, is becoming all-consuming in our lives. Cell phones, laptops, internet connections, uh, uh, what is it, transported offices, uh, um, satellite offices where you, can, you don't even have to go to work, you can work at home. All of those things are beginning to take the, the jobs and the work that we give ourselves to and they're beginning to allow it to encroach upon the rest of the hours that we have in our life. And work is becoming a very consuming occupation, a very consuming reality. Long gone are the, the days of, uh, of Ward Cleaver who would put his hat on and have breakfast with his family and walk out the door at 8.30 to be at work at 9 to pack up his briefcase to come home to take his hat off and come in and eat dinner with the family by 5. And for the rest of the time that he was around, there was nothing else occupying him but what the beaver was getting into and the games and sports that Wally was playing. And, and a lot of us grew up looking for this idea of life when we could check in and check out of the work and the vocation that we get to do or have the opportunity to do. But the reality of it is that occupation and that work is now becoming an all-consuming thing. 
And so one of the things we're going to look at this morning, that Solomon is going to look at this morning in Ecclesiastes, is why do we do it? Why do we actually work? Why do we actually do the things that we do? Now, for some of you, it's a quick answer. For some of you, it's survival. You know, you work because you've got to. You've got to pay the bills. You've got to eat. You've got to have a roof over your head. And so because of that, maybe you're raising a child. Maybe because of that, you endure frustrating circumstances, frustrating surroundings, difficult people. But you've got to do it. I mean, for others, it's success. It's power. It's motivation. You work because you try to get something out of that work to prove to yourself something about who you are. You work to achieve. You love the thrill of getting the next victory, finishing the next project, acquiring the next account, growing larger records of accounts. And for some of you, uh, your work you do is, is relatively ambivalent. You really just don't care. You just do it because. I mean, you feel like nobody would even notice what you did unless you just didn't do what you were supposed to do. What you do is unnoticed until you fail to do something that somebody may have wanted you to do. You like the freedom, you may even like some of the work, but the ambivalent side of your heart finds it actually frustrating and isolating. There are different reasons why all of us do what we do, but one thing is for sure, we all want our work to mean something, don't we? I mean, if we're going to spend at least half of our life pursuing this type of occupation or work or labor, you at least want it to count for something, don't you? You at least want what you do to, to mean something to yourself or somebody. You want it to provide some type of purpose or significance, right? Am I the only one in that? For all of that, look at what I read this week. The International Labor Organization did a research study that ended in 2008. And they found this, that Americans now work more hours than any worker in any other industrialized country. And of all that work and of all that labor and of all that effort, one-tenth of the workers studied in this study said they're satisfied with their work or with their job. Over half of your life given to this. Hours and hours and hours, not even there but in your mind and in your heart, consumed with this. And one-tenth find what they do satisfying. One in four, one in four, say they give their best effort at work. And the research showed that 20% of an average worker in America's time is wasted during the week, creating the effect of a four-day work week. Yet you're there, consumed, pressured, busy, wasting time. You've only got one life. You've got one shot at this thing. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? And does it really have to be this way? This is what Solomon's going to get after this morning. And so far in Ecclesiastes, we've seen Solomon try to chase meaning and pleasure, and meaning and significance um, and purpose out of pleasure as he gave his heart and gave his life to seeking all the pleasures and experiences in life, hoping to find meaning and purpose in them. And he found it only to be frustrating, only to be fleeting, only to be momentary, not able to supply him the lasting sense of satisfaction and the lasting sense of meaning and purpose that his heart was really looking for. So he turned to wisdom twice. He's turned to wisdom. Maybe in just understanding the world around me and maybe having a better grasp over all of those things, I can get an edge on the frustration. I can get an edge on the futility. I can overcome the, the sense of purposelessness and meaninglessness and the enigmatic nature of life if I can just know more. And he found that in the end to be frustrating because as we saw last week for the first time, when it's all said and done, death ultimately makes fools of all of us. No matter how wise you were or how smart you were in the wisdom of this world, when you die, it doesn't really count for much. And so he found himself frustrated again. But of all the frustrating things that you can experience, of all the things that make you feel like you're just hurting the wind, striving to shepherd the wind, like Solomon talks about, is there anything more frustrating and continually disappointing in the work you do? I mean, is there anything more frustrating ultimately day in and day out than the work that you find yourself doing? It doesn't matter what you do, whether you spend your life in a boardroom or whether you spend your life in a living room, it doesn't really matter. Whether you make coffee or whether you do surgery, is there anything more frustrating than the everyday work you find yourself giving half of your life to. In Ecclesiastes 2, what we'll see this morning is that 
work, toil, is one of the things that ended up, that, that Solomon ended up hating the most about life. Work, toil, day in and day out struggling. It became one of the things that he most despised about his life here on earth. Look at chapter two, verse 17. This is what we ended with last week in Solomon's lament. So after all this enigma and vanity and frustration and pleasure and wisdom, I, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity, all is enigma, all is frustrating and striving after the wind. Verse 18, so I hated all of my toil in which I toil under the sun. You know that feeling? I mean, is it frustrating to you? Is the work that you give yourself over to frustrating, continually disappointing? Have you ever felt what Solomon is talking about here? Now, before we actually begin to unpack why Solomon has come to this conclusion, I want you to see that in the big picture of the Bible, the big story of Scripture, it wasn't supposed to be this way, and it ultimately doesn't have to be this way. You see, the scriptures give an amazingly positive view of work, an amazingly positive view of labor, a dignity, a joy that's inherent in our capacity and our ability to actually do work. You see, back in the very beginning, when we'll go back to Genesis a lot in Ecclesiastes, because that's where the story actually starts. <clears throat> but on the very first page of your Bible, when you open up your Bible to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, one of the first things you're confronted with is the reality that the creator of all things that exist, the, the God of the heavens and the earth, is a worker. What you see in the first chapter of Genesis is God creating, making, calling into existence, existence shaping beauty and form out of nothingness. You see an unbelievable wisdom, an unbelievable skill, and an unbelievable aptitude towards work played out in the person and the character of God. Our God is a worker. And you see in Genesis 1, him creating this universe and everything that exists and crowning that work with the creation of humanity. And we weren't just the crown jewel or the last thing he created. We were the only thing that he created in his image. You and I, humanity, we were created in the image of this God who in himself is a worker. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is that as he created us in his image, he gave us this call, he gave us this capacity, and he gave us this charge to work. We were created to work. Now, don't hear me say what I didn't say there. We were not created for work. That's a huge distinction that we're going to unpack for the rest of our time this morning. We were created in the image of God to work, to cultivate creation, to take the creation and the beauty of what God had already put in place in the garden and to work that thing in dependence upon God for his glory to see that garden spread across all of creation. We were created by God to work because he himself is one who works. We were not created for work. Work was never intended by God to be the thing that we drew some type of purpose out of. But that's the very thing that we've ended up doing that we find ourselves in this frustrating and disappointing place because of. But in the beginning, we were created by God to work. We were created to reflect his unbelievably powerful, creative, and energetic nature. He put us here. He put us here to work. And in the beginning, in the beginning Adam received that call. He received that charge. He received that command as a gift from God. He received it from God as a blessing. And it's a gift and it's a blessing and it's an act of grace, as we'll see later, that we too need to receive from God. That we too need to begin to see the work that we've been called to do as a gift from God and receive it as such, as a blessing. And that's where the key to finding joy and satisfaction and meaning is. But I'm actually getting ahead of myself there. So if we were created by God to reflect his image on this earth as a worker, to work, to cultivate, to spread the beauty and the glory of his creation across the ends of the earth, and we were created to be like him in that, why does does work feel so much like work? 
I mean, why did work all of a sudden become a four-letter word? Why do we talk about work and all of a sudden we feel this immense frustration and, and weight and pressure and the tone of our voice goes down and I want to talk about anything but, but work. Why does it feel that way? Well, work became a, a four-letter word, a thing of frustration and disappointment because of sin, not because of God's design. You see, God had created Adam and Eve in his image to to cultivate the garden, to reflect his glory as they did the work that he called them to do. But instead, they exchanged the reality of of who God was. We talk about this all the time for a lie about who he was. And in that exchange, they ceased in a relationship to God to do the very thing they were called to do. And instead, they began to look at that thing as something to draw life and purpose and significance and wisdom out of And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And sin entered into the equation and began to shatter the very fabric of the relationship between man and God. It also shattered the relationship between man and woman, between humanity. And it shattered the relationship between man and the rest of God's creation. You see, their exchange, their original sin, it's often called in the Bible, is what brought the frustration and disappointment into work. And God stepped in to deal with it. And you see this in Genesis chapter 3. I think it's up there. Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. This is what God said after that unbelievably fateful exchange. God came to the woman and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I will increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam... God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed now is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You'll eat of the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You see, God came in, and I want to straighten out a popular misunderstanding, and maybe it's just in our language, but God stepped into the situation after Adam and Eve disobeyed and exchanged the truth of him for a lie, and he did not come in and curse Adam and Eve. God did not come in and curse the man and the woman. He cursed their work. God came in and said, here's what I'm going to do. Eve, the work to which you are going to be called and drawn is not going to frustrate you. It is going to work against you. Your husband, your kids... Your house, the relationship between you and Adam, frustrated. What I had created and put together to reflect my glory, you're now going to find frustration in. Do you still feel that? Ladies, is there anybody more frustrated in your life than your husband or your kids? Those who are married, those who aren't, look forward to it. There will be no one more frustrating in your life than your husband and your kids. And to Adam, he came in and said, he didn't say, I curse you, Adam. He said, now I'm going to curse your work. I'm going to curse the ground. And by the ground, you're going to have to find your dependence. And you know what? I'm going to let it fight against you. As you seek to do the very thing that I called you to do because of your disobedience, now the ground is going to fight you. It's going to frustrate you. As you begin to cultivate this earth, thorns are going to grow up. Thistles are going to grow up. It's going to reflect my relationship with you and your disobedience towards me. And so God came into the situation and he cursed the work that Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity now were supposed to put our hands to. What we do now frustrates us and fights against us. It's hard. It's work. The earth and what we put our hands to is fighting us. My car breaks, my house breaks, my lawn gets weeds, no matter how many chemicals we put down on it. No matter how well I tend my gardens at my house, Somehow, these bugs I can't see still eat them. Squirrels still get into my tomatoes. I can't shoot enough of them to keep them away. The ground under which we begin to work and all the things we put our hand to because of sin, it now fights against us. And what was created by God and given to us as a blessing, as a gift of his grace, that was meant to pull out of us the creativity and the passion that he created us with that would reflect his glory and now fights against us. And even our best efforts at our work to overcome this frustration ultimately bump up against the curse. No matter how well we do, no matter how hard we work, 
no matter how successful it tends to look, ultimately at some point, it's going to bump up against this curse and we're going to be frustrated. And instead of work being a gift that we have received now with a blessing from God as a gift of his grace and received with thanks and then go out and pursue with joy and stability and passion and vitality, now instead of doing what he created us to do, we now seek to live for what he created us to live for and try to get out of that thing what he never intended for us to get out of it, what we were only intended to get from him, the purpose and the meaning and the satisfaction and the joy. And our work, our toil, as Solomon will say, is now just another illusion that we begin to chase after to find meaning and to find purpose and to find satisfaction because our sin has cut us off from the only true source of those things. And so now we are trying to take a gift that God had given us and trying to pull out of that what it was never intended to give us. And the illusion is that we have exchanged our our tasks, our work, as a defining aspect of our existence. What we were meant to do has now become a way that we try to define who we are. Does that make sense? We've made our tasks in life, our work in life, a defining aspect of who we are. And if you don't believe me, think about the programmed question that we are just wired, and I don't know where it comes from, to ask people when we first meet them. What do you do? As if understanding what you did actually then fulfills for me an idea that I have in my mind of who you must be. Because we have subtly lived under this illusion that we can exchange the realities of who we are for what we actually do. I'm a lawyer, and that means a lot of things then in your mind, at least it does in mine. I'm a barista, I sling coffee. Well, that means a lot to you in your mind about who I must be, and it frustrates and means a lot to me about who I am in relation to who you are. I'm a pastor. I'm a church planter. Really? Is that who you are? Or is that just what you do? We must believe it's who we are, or we wouldn't define ourselves by it so strongly. And we wouldn't be so insistent on shaping our understanding of others around it. Can those things, can these tasks really provide meaning? Really provide purpose? Really provide lasting satisfaction? We must think so. We must think so. Or we would not be so programmed to find that out about people from the very beginning. I don't know, just a thought. Yet, According to Solomon, what we'll see now in Ecclesiastes 2 is the reality that these things, these jobs, this work, this task was never meant to provide the things that we're trying to get out of it. You know this by your own experience. The amazing thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is it's nothing revolutionary. All it is doing is putting words to the reality of what you know in your heart. You know whether I read this next text and talk about it or not, that what you do, the task you do, the work you do, cannot define who you are. And it cannot give you the joy, the lasting joy and significance and purpose that you're trying to get out of it. You know that in your own heart. But we fail to actually do anything about it, and we reside ourselves to living in these illusions. But let's listen to what Solomon says. Here's why Solomon says, your work can never be and give you what you're looking for. Verse 18, Solomon says, I hated all of my toil in which I toiled under the sun. Here's the first reason why. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Why did he hate his work? Why did he hate all of the work that he did with all of his life? When he looked at the reality, the fact that at some point he is actually gonna die, he was faced with the reality that someone else is gonna get all the fruit for which he worked for. You're going to die, and someone else is going to profit from all of your sweat. Someone else is going to profit from all of your work. The half of your life, of your hours that you were given on this earth, that you devote to this task, when it's all said and done, whatever you gain from all of that, someone else is actually going to get. And that frustrates Solomon. 
And if you're honest with yourself, it frustrates you when you think about it. Remember, Solomon has looked at his impending death in a very personal way, and he sees that when it's all said and done, his accomplishments, all the stuff, it can't go with him. It can't go with him. I mean, for years, I've toyed with the idea of of doing a class um, on bumper stickers, doing a bumper sticker theology class. I'm fascinated by the things that people stick on their cars. And one of the most foolish and ridiculous bumper stickers I have ever seen is the one that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Is that not the most foolish thing, the most foolish thought you have ever heard? He who dies with the most stuff wins. He who dies with the most stuff worked the hardest to get the most stuff to give to somebody else. And he went to the grave without it because you can't take it with you. And this is frustrating, Solomon. Think about all that he acquired. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Houses that took 14 years to build compared to the seven years it it took to build God's temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Homes and people and gardens and parks, 40,000 horses to pull his royal chariots. He dies and they're all still there. He is boxed up in a little box tucked in a cave somewhere and he's frustrated by it. He thinks of all of his work and all of his sweat and all of his frustration and when it's all said and done, he can't have it. But then he's gonna get even more frustrated. Look at verse 19. And who knows whether the person who gets this, who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he'll be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. See, this really burned him up. Not only does he have to get rid of everything, he can't take it with him. He can't go into eternity with all of his possessions to to get some kind of reputation for himself on the other side of life. He has to leave all that to someone else, and that person might be a fool. All the houses, all the chariots, all the wives, all the property, all the money, all the choirs, all the things that he amassed, he is going to leave to someone else, and that person might not live with it as well as he did. And he's really frustrated now. How, I mean, seriously, if you think about this, I, I mean, I know none of us amass a personal fortune quite like Solomon, but if you think about your own life and the amount to which you work and the labor to which you give yourself to and the things to which you acquire for all of that, when you think about the fact that you're gonna have to let someone else have it when you're dead and that person might be a fool, how frustrating is that? I mean, you think at least you know how to enjoy these things. I mean, you're going to go get this boat because you know what to do with it, but when you die, someone else is going to get it, and that person, he might run it into a dock. He's going to be a fool. Solomon is unbelievably frustrated. He worked hard, and he paid retail for it all. This is what burns me up. Here's a sidebar. This is what burns me up about Craigslist. We love Craigslist at our house. We even have a little application on our phone always check Craigslist. But the thing that I love about it is that someone else paid retail for it. And now I'm getting it at a discounted price, but here's what burns me up about it. I sell stuff there too. And the stuff that I worked for and paid retail for that you're going to get at a discounted price. And that really frustrates me. Because I know how much I work to actually pay for that thing. And now I'm going to sell it for a fraction of what I actually paid for it. This is what's getting him This is what's burning him up when he looks at the significance of what he's actually given himself to. So verse 20, so I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all of the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. It hardly seems fair, doesn't it? You work hard, you break your back, You bust your butt. You wear your fingers down to the bone. All the things that we say. We work more hours than any industrialized nation on the earth. We have the shortest vacations of any industrialized nation on the earth. And we have the weakest family labor protection laws of any industrialized nation on the earth. All to get stuff that ultimately in the end we don't really need and we can't really keep. That according to the statistics, the majority of us buy with money we don't really have and can't really afford for the purpose that we'll see later on in Ecclesiastes of impressing people that we probably don't really even know. And when it's all said and done, you can't keep it. 
What's it all for? You work so hard all this time, all these hours to get all these things. And the reality of it is, is you work so hard that when you finally get to the place where you can actually enjoy it and do something with it, you're going to die. You're going to die. You work so hard to amass it and to get it. And by the time you get there, you can't really enjoy it because you're coming on the other side of things. It hardly seems fair, doesn't it? It hardly seems fair. So how about this? Here's just a thought. Seriously. What if we took and we gathered all of the toys, all of the things that we thought that we needed, all of the boats and all of the RVs and all of the motorcycles and all of the golf clubs and all of the things that we knew we would enjoy, but when we looked at our calendar and we played it out over the last five years, we never really had the chance to enjoy. Those golf clubs I just had to have because I was not playing golf. I've hit the links like once since my honeymoon. Actually, I haven't said it's my honeymoon. 10 years and play golf. What if we gathered up all the toys, we brought them all in, and we sold them all on Craigslist, and we got ourselves free from all the frustration and pressure of trying to do all the things that we haven't really found the time to do, and we used the money, and we planted churches somewhere? Seriously, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> you don't think so. All right. <laughs> I thought so. We'll keep going. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're always looking for strategies. Um, <laughs> when you read this, though, don't, don't, don't miss this. This is really personal for Solomon. This is really personal. And it's going to get really personal for a lot of you. Solomon's coming to the backside of his life, and he's looking at all that he's done and all that he's amassed and the, the, the kingdom that God has given him the wisdom to build. And he's faced the fact that it's coming. He's going to die. Someone's going to get it. And for Solomon, it was his son, Rehoboam. And scripture plays out that Rehoboam was one of the largest fools in the history of the kings of Israel. In the shortest amount of time, Rehoboam would go on to lose what some say is 10 twelfths. And again, remember I told you last week, I don't do math. So I don't know what the smaller version of that is. 10 twelfths of Solomon's kingdom. And in a manner of about 14 years, he was left to just preside over Jerusalem itself. Solomon was looking at his own family, looking at his own life, looking at all the work, all the labor, all the hours, all the frustration and disappointment, and going, I'm going to die. I can't take it. And my moron of a son is going to get it all. What's the point? What's the point? As a nation, we are no longer doing the work that God has called us to do. We no longer see our vocations as occupations and, and work that we are to do. We actually now live for our work, looking for it to provide something for us, some sense of permanence and meaning and significance. And Solomon and the rest of Scripture will say, you just can't do it. Can't do it. We find ourselves spending our lives to acquire things that we can't keep. That's what was frustrating Solomon, but that's not all. Look at verse 22. He's not done being frustrated. Giving up all that he had amassed is frustrating. Giving it up to a foolish son is even more frustrating. But verse 22 says that the work itself, forget what happens to the results of it. The work itself is horrible. I now just hated the fact that I worked, and I hated what I actually did. Look at verse 22. What has a man, look, listen to the words Solomon uses, what has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of what? What's that say? Sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Now, I love this. This is a little aside for you. This is a part of the Bible that's called the, the, the wisdom literature, the books of wisdom. You know, another book of wisdom. Another piece of this literature is the book of Job. And it's about how a man deals with the fact that he has lost everything and how he deals with his relationship with God and who God is in the midst of that. Ecclesiastes is about a man who got everything. He got all that his heart could have ever wanted. Nobody took anything away from him. He was able to get anything he set his mind and his heart on. And he looks at all that he did in the midst of all of that and said, it was a striving of my heart. It brought sorrow it was toil. It was vexation. Now, I did a, 
a quick search on, on monster.com. And nowhere in any job description that I found, and it was not exhaustive, there were more on there, so maybe somebody did it, but no job description that I found on monster.com did it ever list toil, striving of heart, sorrow, vexation, and sleepless nights. Nobody threw that out there. Nobody said, come work for us, you'll have great sorrow. You're going to go home and you're just going to be perplexed about why you just spent the last nine hours doing what you just did. And not only that, not only are you going to give us half of your life, we are going to take from you now the hours with which you were off and the rest of your life with which you sleep because we're going to bother you in your mind and your heart the rest of the time. So now you're not just going to give us half your life to work. We're going to take the rest of it from you. You're going to have sleepless nights. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be perplexed in your heart. It's going to be tired. It's going to be worn down because of what you do. This is one of the things that really gets me personally. There will be nights when things will be going on in my mind and I'll be thinking about the church as, a, as an organization and sometimes I'll be thinking about some of you personally and I'll be thinking about where we are and, and what we're doing and what has to happen and what could go, and my mind gets going about 150 miles an hour and I just can't stop it. And there doesn't ever seem to be an end to the whole thing. And I'll have to get up out of bed and go downstairs and get a piece of paper and a pen and I have to write out every single thing in my head. Whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense, I can't get free from the pressure and the frustration of knowing all those things are in there. So if I can just get it out and put it down somewhere and know that I can come back to it, then maybe I can sleep. But no matter how many lists I make and, and how many structures I put it in and no matter how well I order it and put it into a system, I'm never, I'm never free from the frustration, from the enigma of it all. And this is what Solomon is getting after. Our work is, our work is like kudzu. It's just growing into everything. It's taking the hours that we're awake. It's taking away from us the hours that we're asleep. And be honest, how many, how many of you can actually take a day off or a vacation with your family and not at some point be pressured or frustrated or at least distracted by the work that you think and told everybody else you left behind? It's frustrating. And the Bible will say that we have two equally dangerous yet very opposite reactions to the frustration of work, to the, to the toil, to the, to the sin, to the curse of our work. One thing that scriptures will say about how we respond to this frustration, to the curse, is laziness. Scriptures will say that there are some of us that the Bible will actually call sluggards. I like that. The Bible actually says sluggards. It actually calls people sluggards. It says that some of us will respond to the frustration of work with laziness. We'll actually just shirk our responsibilities. We'll actually just, just see work as the enemy to our real purpose in life, which is comfort and ease and not working. That if we can figure out the best way to not actually have to work and still get by, then we'll be okay. The Bible says that some of us respond to sin's curse this way, that we actually just get lazy. And in response to that, the Bible will actually say, you lazy person, you need to go get schooled by the ant. The antidote for the laziness is to go pay attention to the ant. Listen, well, just quick, I, I actually like this. I, I thought about doing this this week, but we didn't, I'm a brief on it. Proverbs chapter six. Listen to what the Bible actually says to those who respond to the curse of work and the realities of sin with laziness. Proverbs six, verses six. It says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. Now listen to the ant. He has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet he stores up its provisions in the summer and gathers his food at the harvest. So he doesn't need anybody to tell him what to do. He just goes about and does the thing which he was created to do. He just gets up and he goes to work and he does what God created him to do without anybody telling him what to go do. And he says, some of you are just lazy. Some of you are looking for ways to not do the things which you were created to do. You no longer see the work that God has given you as a gift of grace from him. It's now something that you actually have to pull out of some kind of meaning and significance from that you work for. And that's pointless, so why do it? So you've invented ways to actually work 10, 15-hour shifts a week and spend the rest of the week on Facebook or MySpace or whatever's popular out there now. And you work hard and convince yourself that you're working hard, but you're really not. You're just lazy. And the Bible says some of us will just be lazy. 
We won't plan out our work like the ant. We won't work like the ant. We won't be diligent in our work. We'll just look for a way to avoid work. But that's not the only way we respond. The Bible will also say that some of us respond in an equally dangerous yet opposite way. We won't be lazy. We'll actually be addicts. Now, some of us will no longer see that work is something we were created to do, but because of sin, we see work as something we were created for, and we try to work for getting some type of purpose out of what we do, and we give ourselves over to our work for varied numbers of reasons. For some, it's power. For some, it's influence. For some, it's money. But some of us just like doing work, and we draw out of our work some sense of purpose and self-worth, and we give ourselves over to it. The Bible will ultimately call that person an idolater because we are worshiping and serving our work in order to gain something from it instead of seeing it as a gift of grace from God. That's foolishness, and we don't have to go into how the Bible calls that foolishness because Solomon is doing a very good job of that in Ecclesiastes. It's nonsense. It can't do for you what you're trying to get it to do. But in Ecclesiastes, we'll just look ahead real quick. Solomon will say two things to both of these people, to the lazy person and to the addict, to the sluggard and the workaholic. He'll say two things. The first thing he'll say is, you need to work hard. When it comes to our work and the labor that we have on this earth, you need to work hard. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. See, a lot of us are under the illusion that we actually work hard. We can convince ourselves that our short shifts out there somewhere are actually working hard when we're not really working hard. We're just finding a way to convince ourselves that we're actually working hard under this illusion that if we just go and do that, we can spend the rest of the time doing whatever we actually want. The Bible actually calls those people lazy. We're just deceived into thinking we're working hard. But we're actually just doing the minimum that we need to do to actually get by. So Solomon will say in Ecclesiastes 9, work hard. And then in Ecclesiastes 10, he'll say the second thing. He'll say, work smart. You need to work hard, like the ant. And you need to work smart, like the ant. Look at verse, chapter 10, verse 10. If the axe is dull and the edge is unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. Solomon's saying, some of you work hard, and you feel like you're working hard, but nothing's actually getting done, and you're frustrated because you're not working smart. See, this is a proverb, a little metaphor that Solomon is using to talk about the realities of using skill and wisdom to the work that we go and do. And we actually live this, this thing out, at least I do, Aaron may not know this, with our son Jude. I actually give him a dull dinner knife and I send him out to the maple in the front yard to chop at it. He always wants to go cut things. So I actually give him a knife and I send him out to the tree because I know he can't do it. I know that the tree nor Jude will get hurt by him having that knife and going out to the tree and cutting it, trying to saw it. All that's ever going to happen is he's going to get frustrated. And ultimately, he's going to figure out that he can't actually do it one day. But I know that he can go out there and be safe and do that. Solomon is saying that some of you actually go about your work like I send my son out with a knife to a tree. You go and you work hard and you put all your effort into it and nothing actually gets done. But you're working hard, but you're not actually working smart. You're not actually applying wisdom to the work that you're actually doing. You just attack whatever rises to the surface. You're responding to life and the tasks that are ahead of you instead of looking at your life with wisdom and figuring out what the prudent way to go about the work that you've been given is. You become a responder. You no longer live your life. You simply respond to the things that are in your life. And because you work hard but not smart, very little actually gets done. And you get frustrated. And you look around going, look at what I did. I spent all these hours doing all this work, but nothing actually got done. When the reality of it is, you just spun yourself around in circles because you were responding to things. And you weren't working with any level of wisdom. Does that make sense? So Solomon says you need to work hard. You need to work smart. But there's a third way that we respond to the frustration and the sin and the curse of our work. And this is what Solomon's going to get into in the last part of Ephesians, I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He's going to say you can respond to it with laziness, you can respond to it with wisdom, or you can see your work as a gift of grace from God. You can see your work for what it was intended to be for you from the very beginning, and you can respond to it with joy and gratitude because of who God is and what he's done. You can actually live a life of joy and satisfaction in the work that you do because of who it comes from and why you actually do it. Look at verse 24. Ecclesiastes 2, 24. There is nothing better for a person 
than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You see, some people have taken this passage and other passages in Ecclesiastes and say Solomon's thrown his hands up. He's saying, eat, drink, be merry, carpe diem, seize the day, you're going to die, there's no good in it, so go do whatever you want to do. But that's not what Solomon is saying at all. And he's not schizophrenic. He's not going back and saying, I told you earlier that you can't really find enjoyment in your wisdom, and you can't really find enjoyment in food and drinks and pleasure, and now I'm going to tell you just the best thing you can do is go and enjoy those things. He's not being schizophrenic at all. Solomon is actually pointing us back to the very beginning of things and the way in which God had created us to respond to who he is and what he's done. And he's saying, you weren't designed by God to live carpe diem, seize the day, do what you want. You were designed by God to live quorum deo, living in before the face of God. You were designed by God to be dependent upon God and to receive all things in this life from God as a gift of his grace. And as you begin to see who he is and what he has done in your work in relation to that, you can begin to have enjoyment and joy and lasting satisfaction in the things that you actually do. Because in his presence, in God's presence, the Psalms say, is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore lasting enjoyment, lasting satisfaction, true meaning and purpose come from God. He gives us not only those things, but the capacity to actually enjoy them. Instead of that, we try to suck out of creation, try to suck out of our work, the things with which he was designed and desires to give us. We exchange that reality from the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve to this very day. And Solomon is saying that is foolishness. It can never work. The best thing for you to do is to look back to to the person you were created for and the way in which you were created and to see who he is and to see that him giving you even this work was a gift of grace to you because he gave it to you to reflect his character, to reflect his nature. You were designed by him to do work as he is one who works. And that in that work, you would reflect his wisdom over what you put your hand to, and you would roll that work up into praise and worship for who he is as he gives you the wisdom to do the thing he's actually called you to do. Ephesians chapter four, Paul will say it this way. Paul will say, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He didn't prepare us for those works. He prepared us to do those works. We are God's workmanship. Some of you have heard this before. That word workmanship in Ephesians is actually a word that you can translate poem. We are God's poem. We are the result of his wisdom and his beauty and his passion and his intelligence and all of his glory poured out into creation. We are his workmanship that our sin shattered. But... What does he say in Ephesians? Created, recreated in Christ Jesus. Not only were we the pinnacle of his creation in the beginning, we are now the pinnacle of his creation in redemption. We have been recreated in Christ Jesus to do the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. The beauty of it is the gospel has restored to us the capacity to do the things that we were created to do, to receive from God the things that we were trying to get out of the work that we were doing. We have been reconciled to God through Christ so that we could see the work. One of the things we get out of it is the capacity to see the work that we do as a gift from him, to be restored into a relationship of dependence upon him, to see that we are created in his image like him, to do the things that he has called us to do, not for our own glory, not for our own purposes, but to roll up in praise to him that he would receive the glory for what we do. See, we can actually be free. We can actually be free from the illusion of living for our work, the illusion that grabs our hearts and sucks away half of the hours that we get on this earth. We can be free from the illusion of living for our work as we see that in Jesus, the hardest work that has ever been done by any human in the history of humanity has already been accomplished by him on the cross. The hardest, most significant, most lasting work that could ever be done has already been accomplished by someone else on your behalf. The most significant work 
ever done has been done on your behalf for you by someone else. Jesus. Jesus often called himself a worker. He said he came to do the work that his father had sent him here to do. He did his heaviest, most difficult, most labor-intensive work, not, not in the carpentry shop of his dad, but on the cross for us in redemption. And when it was done, he cried out, it's finished. That work, that work is done. That work of significance and lasting transformation is done. He not only now gives us the capacity to do work, but now God through Christ gives us the capacity to enjoy it. We get the capacity to enjoy the work that God has given us to do the way that he had done in the very beginning before Adam and Eve exchanged the truth about him. You see, when you see this and when you understand this in your heart to, to actually be the case, you actually see that God not only gives you this, but he gives you the joy with it. Look at verse 26. For the one who pleases him, this is what Solomon's gonna conclude. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. To some, God gives the rewards, the lasting rewards of wisdom and knowledge and joy. Lasting treasures in the midst of perishing toys. They're yours. True satisfaction, true enjoyment, true joy and wisdom and knowledge are yours. To others, to others, those who do not find their satisfaction in the work that Jesus has done on the cross on our behalf, who don't find that lasting joy in him and what he has done and don't understand now that what they do is a reflection of that and have been changed by that, but continue to get out of their work what it was never meant to do, to those, you're just gonna spin your wheels. You're gonna keep amassing, keep collecting, keep working, keep taking the limited breath that you've got and applying it to get for yourself all the things that you can get so that one day you can die and leave them to someone else. And in God's providence, sometimes it happens that that will go to someone who does find God satisfying. This is what Solomon is saying. It sounds arrogant. I know that. Some of you hear me say that. And to you, it sounds arrogant. But see, here's the thing. To those who are satisfied in all that God has done for us in Jesus, to those who are distancing themselves from the illusion that our significance and our purpose and our joy can be found in what we do, to those who are distancing themselves from the illusion that we live for our work to get from our work what God had only designed to give us, to those, our joy, our satisfaction, our meaning isn't tied to our stuff. It's not tied to what we do. It's not arrogant at all to say that God gives wisdom and joy and pleasure to those who are finding him satisfying. Because our joy it's not tied to what we do, what we can get, what we have, what we can accomplish. It's the most freeing thing in the world. To be free from the pressures of trying to dig out of your work all of these things. To dig out purpose and meaning and satisfaction only to find it frustrated. To dig out meaning and satisfaction and joy of all the stuff only to see it crumble, break, or be given to someone else. But to those who please God, to those who find God satisfying, to those who glorify God by becoming more satisfied in who he is for them. God gives lasting joy, lasting significance, lasting wisdom, and the capacity to not only do the work he created us to do, but to actually enjoy it as a reward from him. And in that, in, that, in the light of the gospel of what God has done for us through Jesus, sin now makes all of life, makes all of life the ultimate vanity, the ultimate enigma, the one who lives for work, gathering what can only be taken, what can't be taken with him, his life becomes an empty expression of futility. That's what happens. You know it to be true in your own heart. Now listen, once we, once we actually honestly begin to wrestle 
to wrestle with the illusions of, of work and toil and what we work for versus working to bring God glory. Once we wrestle with those illusions, we can actually pursue, we can actually pursue our work in a way that brings joy and real change. Real change and, and real satisfaction because even as we actually bump up into the curse and bump up into frustration, when we see that our work was given to us by God to reflect his character, to bring him glory, and when we pursue it with our hearts that he might be glorified through what we do, when we bump up into the curse and we bump up into the frustration, we can look at it and see that it, along with our work, is an instrument in his hands to free us from the illusions. The actual frustration becomes a tool to free us from the illusion. We bump up into the frustration of work and the vanity of work and the disappointment of work, and it can be used by God through grace to free us from the illusion of trying to get out of our work something it wasn't supposed to give us. Unbelievable. God actually uses the work to change our hearts, to draw us to him, and he uses the frustration that sin produces in it to free us from dependence on it to find him more satisfying. That's the beauty of grace. God takes what sin had sought to destroy and uses it for his glory and his good and changing us to reflect him. The futility draws our hearts. The frustration draws our hearts. The disappointment in our work draws our hearts to the only real source of satisfaction and joy. It's now used to change us. And when we begin to see this, when this begins to become the, the lens and the shape with which we understand the work that we do in our lives on this earth, we can actually begin to wake up. Actually begin to wake up in the morning and ask ourselves, what is God going to do in my work today? How will he unnerve me? How will he expose the illusion that I'm under? How will he draw me closer to him? How will he use me? How will he use me in my work to bless other people through what I do? How will he use what I do to bless other people? Unbelievable. You can wake up and you can know in the morning as you begin to get ready, as you eat your breakfast, as you get in your car, as you begin to make that commute that you do every single day. You can get up and you can know that your work is not the most important thing in the world. That your work is not the most defining thing about you. That God loves you no more, no less, no matter how successful you are or how much you fail at what you do. It doesn't change the way that God sees you or how God loves you. God loves you either way. It doesn't define you. Your meaning is not tied to your job or your success in it. You can wake up and you can get dressed and you can get ready to go and you can drive to work and you can look at the day ahead of you knowing that you're going to do the same thing today, the same thing tomorrow, the same thing the next day, and the same thing the day after that. And you can know that your love for God and your gratitude towards God for giving you this work through his grace can compel you, can now drive you, can now push you to look beyond yourself and trying to provide for yourself and begin to see how you can work to meet the needs of other people. You begin to see your work not as amassing for yourself, but God giving you this opportunity, giving you this work to go and to meet the needs of other people. You can look around at your neighborhood. You can look around at your apartment. You can look around at your friends and begin to see the needs of other people pop up. And you can go to work day in and day out to the very thing that once brought you great frustration and toil and disappointment. And you can look at it as a gift of God's grace that you could be used through that to meet the needs of other people that you no longer work for yourself. You no longer do this to amass for yourself. You no longer do this to prove something to yourself and other people about who you are. This is a gift of God's grace that he's given to us as his children, as his ambassadors we talk about here in this earth to reflect his glory. Redemption begins to shape the way we work and the way we see our work and the way we relate our work to the world around us. This is the way that you can wake up and go about your job tomorrow. This is the way you can wake up and go about your job the next day. So why are we working? We'll end it this way, the way we started. Why do you work? Do you work to achieve? Do you work to be known? Do you work to gain something for yourself? Or do you work to one day hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant? Why are you working? As we close, I want to actually close 
by reading through the reflection questions. It's normal for us, for those who are new, to end our, our time in the Word together by reflecting on what we said. And some questions come on the screen. They're in your bulletins. And generally, we have a time where you just be quiet and you read and you think and you pray. But I want to end this morning by reading through them with you. And I just want you to think as we read through them. Here, this first one. Do I work for the praise of others or the world now or the world to come? Why do you work? You know, there's nothing wrong with the fruits of your labor. Listen to me. Don't hear me in any of this say. Some of you want to hear me say this. Don't hear me say it. The fruits of your work, they're great. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. The Bible actually has an unbelievably positive view of wealth. There's nothing wrong with the fruit of your work being wealth. The Bible is never about those things. It's after the heart of why you do what you do and how the heart behind what you do shapes the way you see how God works through what you do and what you do with that. Don't hear me say that houses are wrong and boats are wrong and golf clubs are wrong and wealth is bad. It's not. It's not. Some of you are going to be blessed by God to work hard, to work with wisdom, to work smart, and God is going to bless your labors. Nothing wrong with that. I'm asking why. Why do you do it? That's what's most important to God. Why do you do it? Because that will shape what you do with it. The second one, what rewards are you seeking? I mean, is the desire in your work to hear the well done, well done, good and faithful servant from God? Is the blessing of God the, the motivating factor for why you do what you do? Is it the energy behind your work? You know, all of our, I was thinking about this this morning, all of our good intentions to why we work, I work to send the kids here. I work to help my mom who's going to live with us down the road. I work to do this. All the good intentions that we put can often, not always, but often become a, a smokescreen to the illusion that we live under when really we're working for ourselves. We're working to get for ourselves, to prove something to ourselves, and we just mask it with good intentions and, and make ourselves feel better about why we do what we do. But serving God through the work that he has given us, that he would be glorified as we reflected his character by doing what he has called us to do well, that's really not the heart of it at all. But it sounds good to say, I'm working so that I can take care of this person. Be careful of that. What are you actually after? What rewards are you after? And where do those rewards come from? Third, do you plan? Do you pray, plan, and perspire? I tried, Ray, I tried, I tried three Ps for you, buddy. Do I play, pray, plan, perspire to make more money so that I can give more away? What's the perspective you have on the fruit of your work and of your labor that God has blessed you with? I love this. And let me read this to you real quick. We're going to wrap up. Um, the president of, of Wake Forest University um, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which we've commended to you a few times through this series. The president of Wake Forest University was talking about the increase in students pressing themselves through uh, programs aimed at some of the higher, um, the higher income job brackets, uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, financiers. And he's talking about the pressure to achieve through that. And this is what the president of Wake Forest said. He said, here's the problem. Kids are choosing professions not in the answer to the big questions of meaning and purpose, not to the answer the question of what job helps people flourish, but they're choosing careers based on jobs that will help them flourish. They're asking what will help me flourish. And as a result, there's a high degree of frustration expressed over unfulfilling work. Do you see your job as a gift of grace from God that he can use to not only shape you into his image, but he has given you to do as his ambassador here to see the lives of others transformed? Do you pray that way? Do you plan that way? Do you work that way? Or do you work for yourself and continue to find the frustration and lack of fulfillment that comes from it? We'll end it with this. Because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because of God making right what our decision through sin had made wrong, all of our work, all of our labor, labor has dignity and has eternal significance. That's what Martin Luther said. He said, your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it, and through it, he wants to bestow his blessings on you. And the praise of work should be inscribed on every tool and on the forehead and faces of, 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 faces of people sweating and toiling. God has given us 
the venue through work to reflect his image as a glorious and wonderful creator. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Sometimes I think I make it muddier. Or your word is clear. We cannot live for our work and, and try in that to find fulfillment and joy and satisfaction and meaning. We were created by you and for you. And only in a relationship with you brought to us through Jesus can we find the things that we're looking for. Only in restoring our relationship with you through the work of Jesus on the cross can the work that we do here on earth day in and day out really have dignity and meaning and purpose in a lasting way, in a way that never fails, in a way that always fulfills, in a way that real joy and real significance, real knowledge and wisdom, as your Bible says, will come to us from you. Only in a relationship with you are the rewards of that given to us in the work that we actually do. So God, help us to see our our work that often brings so much frustration and so much disappointment and sucks so much of our mental energy and time. Help us to see that not as a burden that we carry, but as a gift of grace that comes from you. That it's our opportunity to reflect you in the way that we do it. It's not just what we do, God, but the way that we do it that reflects your character and help us to begin to see that it is a tool that you use to shape us and that you have given us to impact the lives of other people around us. Help us to lift our eyes off of ourselves in the work that we do, to no longer seek to work for the praise of others, for the praise of men, for the praise of the world now, but help us to see our work and do our work for the praise of the world to come, to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant, to wake up with an eye towards doing the work that you prepared in advance for us to do as your workmanship. Lord, thank you for the grace of work. Thank you for the blessing of work. Help me and help us to receive it with joy, to receive it for what it is, to change our perspective on it and to be free from the illusion that so easily captures us that it alone can provide for us what we need. But we ask this, that our hearts would be transformed, that joy would spring up in our heart, that passion would spring up in our heart, that energy would pour out of us into what we do, and that you would be glorified in that, that you would receive glory in that, that we would just treasure the joy that comes from you in it. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your precious son, Jesus, who made this a reality for us in reconciling us to you through his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. May you receive honor and glory forever. Amen.